The following audiobook is a true story. All details, no matter how small, are backed up by the historical record, and all dialogue has been taken verbatim from a letter, newspaper or magazine article, oral history interview, records unearthed from the National Archives, or first-hand accounts from the individuals who experienced for themselves the story you're about to hear. With that, thank you for listening. I'm Evan Peter Smith. This is Here by the Owl. If you spend enough time in Watauga County, way out in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, sooner or later you're bound to hear about the Shipleys. He was 101 years old, and she was 96. Their marriage of 71 years all spent on a farm in the shadow of the mountains. High Country Press, one of the local mountain newspapers, called them the first couple of agriculture in the high country. There was something almost biblical when it came to the two of them. Like the sugar maple trees that grow through the valley, the Shipleys seemed as if they'd always been here and always would be, their roots set deep in the loamy mountain soil. But behind that old couple was a story most people in the mountains had never heard before, a story full of details too strange to believe. Crashed airplanes, a secret mission, a mysterious island where it rained constantly, yet the ground stayed bone dry, nightmarish visions from a founding father of the U.S. Air Force, and new life rising from a field of ashes. The Shipleys always thought maybe one day they'd sit down and tell that story properly. But until then, their friends and neighbors in the Blue Ridge Mountains couldn't possibly know why they always held each other so close, why they never let go. Chapter 1. City Girl. The world was on fire when he saw her for the first time. Newspaper headlines warned of merchant boats full of civilians exploding across the Atlantic. Tank blitzes traversed northern Africa, scarring the desert. Bodies floated in the bamboo-tangled swamps of Chinese villages after Japanese airstrikes. Russia was preparing for Nazi invasion. And day and night, bombs kept falling in England and Germany. The blasts flattening schools, museums, and governmental buildings, demolishing homes and apartments, smoldering alleyways and sidewalks. The ungodly inferno spared not even the oldest of churches, melting stained glass scenes of angels and redemption into scorched nightmares right from the book of Revelation. In Independence, Virginia, a small town near the border with North Carolina, far away from any war, geographically speaking, a young man by the name of Robert Gray Shipley found himself in a different kind of foreign territory. It was late December, 1940, an especially frigid night about a week or so before Christmas. Warmly cocooned inside a small church, the young Mr. Shipley glanced at the faces of the strangers around him. He'd only recently arrived in Independence for his job as a county extension agent. His work took him all over, visiting farmers and school agriculture programs, mopping up the mess left behind from the Depression. Tonight, his friend from work had brought him along to this unfamiliar church for the late service. Wearing a black coat and tie that fit just a little too tight over his broad shoulders, Robert Gray Shipley, R.G., as most folks called him, fumbled a flimsy hymn book in his still-numb hands. Even inside, the smell of the cold clung to his jacket. As the service began, the winter weather kept on bashing against the brick siding of the church, but at least inside the air was calm. Advent candles flickered gently by the altar. Holly and wreaths hung all around. The pastor's deep baritone reverberated down the aisle. Argy was just glad to be inside where it was warm. He couldn't say exactly when he noticed her, only that at some point or another during the service, she simply appeared, a young woman up at the front, taking a seat behind the church piano. 
He watched her slide herself forward on the stool, then begin to play. Her hands flowed softly over the keys, the notes cascading like water droplets from tree branches after a rainstorm. She was such a tiny little thing, but soon the music rising from her fingertips soared into such a high volume that even the wind outside fell silent by comparison. At the end of the service, as the rest of the congregation was shuffling out of the pews, the piano player was standing with a group of younger people who'd gathered at the front. The young woman looked even prettier up close, her brown hair glossy and curled, her large eyes gleaming mysteriously in the candlelight. She wore a fine dress that looked like something ready-made from a fancy department store, but for some reason, by the way it rippled as she turned to face him, by the way it fit her so perfectly, he knew right away she'd sewn the dress herself. Nice to meet you, she said when Argy's friend from work introduced the two of them to each other. He felt her gentle grip as they shook hands. Talk among the group that night was all about the war. Just the day before, President Roosevelt had given a speech about shipping arms and supplies to England for the war effort, so speculation had been swirling over the question of whether the United States was about to enter the fight. On the radio, Roosevelt had said it was necessary for the survival of democracy. Tonight, though, R.G. did his best to keep the conversation in lighter territory. He and the piano player exchanged pleasantries, asking where each other was from, how long they'd been in independence, simple things. He found she was easy to talk to, charming, funny, and it didn't hurt that she had a disarmingly beautiful smile. But just as they'd gotten started, it was already time to go. All the remaining congregants were now wrapping coats around themselves as they ventured forth outside into the cold. He wrote down his mailing address for her. Unshy, she wrote down hers as well on a piece of scrap paper, telling R.G. to write her sometime, if he felt so inclined. She signed the note, Agnes. Outside the church, he slid the paper in his jacket pocket and watched her disappear in the falling snow, Christmas lights blurring all around her. Many years later, as an old man, R.G. had a saying he liked to tell his kids and grandkids about those early days of getting to know Agnes. I spent the first 30 years of my life looking for her, he'd tell them. And if I'd spent another 30 years looking, or 60 years, or 90 years even, I still never would have found anyone like her. No one could have expected R.G. to fall for a girl like her, least of all him. Agnes was from a different world. She was the daughter of a businessman who'd owned a general store in McGackiesville, Virginia, more than a week's ride by wagon from the valley in the mountains where R.G. was born. Growing up, Agnes and her three younger sisters had sat prim and proper behind the counter of their father's store, watching as well-dressed townspeople flowed in through the doors. Her childhood had been Easter dresses and piano lessons, pretty hair bows and curtsies, much later, when R.G. drove into town to meet her family for the first time, he would take note of the paved streets and stop signs, the smooth sidewalks, the modern electrical lampposts, and couldn't help but think, she's a real city girl, huh? It was certainly a far cry from his childhood of roasting hogs and birthing cattle, but McGackiesville wasn't New York City either. The streetlights and stop signs had no bearing on the simple fact that everyone in town knew everyone else, and it remained a place where the rule of order was established not so much by the policeman's baton, but by hushed rumors in the church pews. If anything, the gossip traveled much quicker here than it did back in R.G.'s hometown, because in the mountains of North Carolina, you at least had to hop on a horse to tell your neighbor the latest. By the time she graduated high school, Agnes's name was on the lips of those church gossipers more and more often. Unlike other young women who'd come of age in McGackiesville in the 1930s, she had never seemed too worried about keeping up appearances. 
Her neighbors on the block didn't have to do much more than peek through their curtains each morning to see Agnes stroll confidently out of her parents' front door, her head held high as she made her way down the street. They all knew she was heading to the bus station. Once there, Agnes would hop on the line and take her regular seat in the front. Argy may not have seen this part of her life, but he had an easy enough time picturing her. A young woman by herself, seated on the bus by the window, with her gloves and handmade dress, the rumbling of the tires vibrating under her buckled shoes. To some of the other regular passengers, she would have looked curious sitting there. No husband or children with her, no parents or chaperone either. Alone, by all appearances. And what business did a young lady have traveling about by herself each day? What trouble was she up to? But Agnes paid them no mind. She was too busy gazing out the window at the passing land, as though browsing for something she might like to have for herself one day. Chugging along, the bus would finally pull into the station at Harrisonburg, where Agnes would disembark, exit the station, and make her way down the road and up the hill, passing along the roadbed to the campus of Madison College. The wide college green was lush with ginkgo trees, American and Siberian elms, red oaks, black walnuts, and Norway spruce. She strolled through the cool shade of their foliage along the path that led up to the industrial school for women. The elegant building stood like a courthouse at the end of the green, a stately and dignified compound of learning. And as it so happened, just about the only option around for a young woman desiring a college education. Ever since she was a girl, Agnes had known in her bones that she would one day attend college. Her parents had agreed, having seen no reason why she or her sisters shouldn't expand their horizons beyond the quaint street signs and corner stores of McGackiesville. But the rest of the town had other notions. From an early age, all the girls in McGackiesville had it hammered into their pigtailed heads that respectable young women shouldn't be caught dead attending college. It was simply not the ladylike thing to do. There were a few who broke that rule, but just that, a few. And everyone knew who those girls were. They stood out like wine stains on a wedding gown. Not that those girls would ever need wedding gowns, mind you. Everyone knew they lacked virtue, were less likely to find husbands, were in some way tarnished, or in the worst cases, had deluded themselves into thinking they should strive for a career, the most lonesome of all fates. Just about every other eligible girl in town had followed the rules. They'd gotten married, moved in with their husbands, had babies, and kept the home in order. So Agnes was quite a topic of curiosity amongst the gossiping crowd. Just a few summers prior, Agnes had taken first place in the regional beauty pageant. She would have had easy pickings for a husband. So why make things difficult for herself? Or perhaps, they wondered, it was because of what had happened to her father's business. In which case, the gossipers agreed, all the more reason for her to find a husband with prospects. Agnes knew there was only so much she could say in response to speculation like that. Beyond the polite smile and shoulder shrug, trying to convince them was like pushing water uphill with a rake. She didn't like the attention, for one, and besides, she'd rather spend her time on useful endeavors. So, each morning, as she walked into the college building in Harrisonburg, she would make her way to the laboratory. There, she'd put on her white lab coat, her protective goggles, and her sanitized gloves. The previous night's experiment would be waiting for further observation and markup. Looking through her microscope, Agnes would note the water content, the chemical makeup, what the seepage of fluids indicated. Always something new. Always a surprise, an unexpected development. That was what made it exciting. She was well aware of what folks said about her. She had ears, after all. And a part of her could understand what they meant. 
Some people just didn't understand why she spent all this time craning her neck and staring at such ordinary objects as a slice of an old Florida mango, or a petri dish of fermented syrup, or a rotting tomato. Why go through the trouble? But then, who says a moldy piece of fruit can't be just as fascinating as, say, the panorama of the night sky? Scientists had spent centuries gazing upward with telescopes at the mathematical beauty in the stars. What was so different about what she was doing? She just happened to be looking downward, using her microscope to see the beauty in the ordinary. But that close up, the architecture of a soggy mango was every bit as intricate and awe-inspiring as the constellations above. To be fair, though, one did stink just a bit more. Agnes studied home economics. To some, that meant baking cookies and twirling about in an apron, a silly excuse for real academic work. And Agnes found that to be so odd. For the life of her, she couldn't square how certain folks could condemn her educational aspirations as an arrogant overreach, while at the same time dismissing those pursuits as mere girlish dilly-dallying. But so be it. She preferred keeping her head down and going about her work anyway, especially as it grew more complex the further along her studies advanced. By the time Agnes was a senior, she had finally completed her thesis, her masterpiece. The work had a simple enough title, Food Preparation, but the total tally of pages on which she had handwritten her research in small looping cursive, on both sides of each sheet for that matter, including hand-drawn charts, graphs, and data tables, came to number 212 sheets thick, with subtopics such as history of the development of scientific canning, tin manufacturing, bacteriology, principles of food preservation, commercial ice making and cold storage, and commercial protein use. The classroom was called a laboratory for good reason. When she wasn't in the lab, Agnes took on odd jobs to help her family get by during the Depression. Her father had told her they'd be fine without any extra help, but she knew they were already in debt even before paying for her education. Especially now that her father's general store was gone, it felt only right to do what she could. One of those jobs was repossessing vehicles for the owner of a car dealership in town. Agnes had a knack for the work, even if she didn't exactly enjoy confrontation, but that turned out to be her secret weapon. Folks who hadn't paid up what they owed for their cars might have been peering out their window, but they wouldn't think twice when Agnes strolled by. This cute girl with her light brown hair pinned back into innocent curls, her lipstick evenly applied, her posture straight and elegant like a lady. Just a minute or so later, however, after using the dealership key to slide gracefully into the driver's seat, Agnes would screech off in that car with both hands gripping the wheel tight. Her gift was to float under the radar until the moment came to strike. Sometimes the delinquent car owner would even run after her down the road, shaking a fist in the air. People who happened to be out for an afternoon stroll would hear the roar of the engine as Agnes whipped around the corner, driving like a bank robber on the run, and they would shake their heads at the madness of it all. It was a strange time in her life. Her friends from high school were bouncing newborn babies on their laps, giving their husbands kisses on the cheek, and making sure supper was on the table. Agnes, meanwhile, was either speed racing in semi-stolen cars, or peering at rotten food items through a microscope in a lab, filling pages and pages of notebooks with her observations about the chaotic beauty of decay. A strange time, but life was good. The best moments always came at the end of each day, when the halls of the industrial school were quiet, when Agnes was tired in all the best ways. She would switch off the lights in the lab, place her white coat in her locker, and collect her things, then take the hushed bus ride from college back into town, 
followed by that long, solitary walk from the station to her house. Windows glowed in the home she passed along the street, and if any of the curtains at those windows happened to inch back, and if any prying eyes happened to stare out at her, Agnes was too busy looking ahead to notice. R.G. would learn all of this later, through her letters, and it was from these stories that he realized, almost by accident, that he was falling in love with her. Masked General Store was a cozy gathering spot in R.G.'s hometown of Valley Cruces, North Carolina, just down the road from his farmland in the town of Vilas. As a boy, he used to ride his ponies there on errands for his mother. Now, in the winter of 1941, he parked his old Pontiac out in front of the store and walked inside quickly, heaving the door shut behind him to keep the cold at bay. The potbelly stove sighed heat over the wooden floorboards. Men with hats in their hands would be talking amongst themselves in the corner, and women perused the aisles with baskets in their hands, while small kids stood on tiptoes around the barrels full of candy. Master General Store was R.G.'s regular pit stop whenever he needed anything for the farm, the logbook of his purchases going all the way back to when he was just a boy, on those errands to pick up fertilizer or nails or other basic needs. Now he made the same pit stops on his weekly return to his farm as a grown man. After collecting what he needed, he would navigate his Pontiac along the steep, narrow, and winding road that led back to his farm in Vilas. But he always stopped by the post office first to see if another letter from Agnes had showed up. In those early months of getting to know her, those letters were as vital as any nails or fertilizer or other farming supplies, if not more so. R.G. was almost 30 years old when he met Agnes, more than old enough to start thinking about settling down. But the trouble was, where to find the time? His job as an extension agent kept him busy out in Grayson County, Virginia, and beyond, going around helping farmers and offering educational services, rarely staying still for long. When he wasn't working, he spent a few days a week back here on his farm in the mountains of North Carolina, where he grew crops and raised cattle and other livestock. He was already pulled in so many different directions. But he'd still decided to write to Agnes after meeting her in that church, and it helped that she didn't seem to have any expectations from him, Although, judging by how quickly she wrote back, she didn't seem to not welcome hearing from him either. R.G. wrote that it'd been nice to meet her. She wrote back, saying she thought so too. He wrote back, and then she wrote back. He wrote, she wrote. And on and on it went over the coming weeks, the two getting to know one another through messy cursive scribbled on cheap stationary paper, their letters growing gradually longer as snow piled up outside R.G.'s farmhouse window. He learned about Agnes's childhood in McGackiesville and her college years studying home economics. She told him about how after she'd graduated, she'd moved hours away from McGackiesville to her current home, Independence, Virginia, a town with a fitting name for a young woman seeking to branch out on her own. But her start there hadn't exactly been luxurious. After graduating college, Agnes had managed to find a room in a house owned by a family named Rudy. But when cold weather arrived, Mrs. Rudy had decided... She no longer wanted to heat the side of the house in which Agnes was living. Agnes was kicked out into the cold, quite literally, and only found solace when a kind couple named Mr. and Mrs. Moore took pity upon her and offered her a place to sleep in their kitchen pantry. But even that was better than nothing. Around that time, Agnes had gotten a job as a teacher for the National Youth Administration, that New Deal agency President Roosevelt had created to provide opportunities for those who came up in the Depression. She loved the job. All her friends back home were married, but even later on, once she was well into her 20s, Agnes saw no need to settle down. She loved working and living on her own out in Independence. She had since moved on from living in that pantry and was now situated in a boarding house with a few roommates. She had her own space, too, 
her own little room, and could decorate it as she pleased, could close the door and exhale alone in her own little pocket of the world. It was hers, no one else's. By day, she taught rural girls how to survive in tough times. She would have loved teaching them Shakespeare or how to play Chopin on the piano, but these were strictly practical lessons. Nutrition, health care, finances. Teenage mothers who hardly understood how they'd gotten those babies in the first place would come to her asking what to do, what this meant, what that was, and Agnes would show them. It was astounding to her sometimes how little these girls knew of the world. One time, a girl boiled an ear of corn for several hours, Agnes told R.G. in one letter. There were more than a few nights when she stayed up late worrying, but when she was able to see once malnourished and sickly infants return to her, rosy-cheeked and giggling, and relieved young mothers hugging her with tears in their eyes, well, what could beat that? Reading these stories in Agnes's letters over the coming weeks, something curious happened to R.G. He found that time was changing, the hours and minutes slowed down between her letters arriving. Whenever he was waiting to hear back from her, time felt bloated and sluggish. He found himself stopping by the post office to check his mailbox more frequently than was logical. On occasion, he had to stop himself from writing to her, because whenever a new story or fresh idea popped into his head, he felt the sudden urge to put pen to paper and tell her about it. It didn't have to be important. Sometimes it could be downright goofy. A lamb with a funny haircut he'd seen or a cow that kept bashing at a farmer's rear end. He just felt like letting her know. He knew sending two letters back to back wouldn't look very good, too eager, and yet sometimes he just couldn't help it. It looks like my pen is very anxious to write, he began one letter that winter. Could this letter be too soon? It would be nice to talk to you again, but since you did not even count that last call as a proper letter, I thought I'd better not try that again. Last month my telephone bill was so high anyway, I asked my landlord if I could get a reduction after $10.50. No such luck. They tried talking on the phone as much as they could, but calls cost real money, and making sure both of them would be there to talk took some coordination. If I should be able to, I will call you Friday night at 7.30, he wrote to her at the start of the week. Don't wait up for the call, though, if you're busy, and do not let me interfere with your weekend plans. Later, after they'd scheduled times to meet in person for a couple of dates, he got bolder. It was so good to see you again, Saturday night, he wrote. I still think you live much, much too far away. R.G. hadn't been alone before meeting Agnes. He'd gotten to know other young women through church or social gatherings, but none of them would have warranted a farmer like him writing such detailed and exposed letters. It was such a beautiful moonlit drive Sunday night as I came down the Blue Ridge Parkway all by myself, he wrote after seeing Agnes one night in early 1941, he described the stars, the clouds drifting in very peacefully over the valley, and the moon glowing so bright. It wasn't poetry, exactly, but it was close enough for a man who spent his days out with cattle and muddy hogs. Somehow, without either of them ever being fully aware of it, they'd become a real couple, planning whatever time they had to be together. R.G. would put on his best coat and tie, while Agnes would wear one of the new dresses she'd sewn. They'd go bowling, maybe see a movie or a concert show. With her help, R.G. was learning to appreciate orchestral music. That is, R.G. was pretending to appreciate orchestral music to impress her. Agnes loved taking him to the Cooperative Concert Association's presentations of violinists and pianists performing the work of musicians with fancy names like Schumann, Shimanowski, Glazunov, and Tchaikovsky. 
R.G. noticed Agnes always saved the bulletins of each concert. Keepsakes, she called them, slipping them in her purse. Afterwards, they took long walks down Main Street of Independence. It was late winter still. Snow swirled around the lampposts while they walked, their shadows elongating and shortening as they moved under the light. All down the street, American flags had been hung from every brick storefront, flapping in the wind behind them. Elsewhere, the bombs kept falling. On the front page of the Watauga Democrat, the mountain newspaper that showed up once a week in R.G.'s mailbox, the headlines about the war overseas never took up much space. World War veterans are asked to register, read one headline at the very bottom of the February 6, 1941 edition's front page. The story itself, nothing more than a paragraph urging ex-servicemen to register at the Legion Hut so they may be contacted, quote, in case of emergency. Another story wedged near the bottom ran with the headline, Young Watauguan highly pleased with Army life, and told the story of one Claude Woodrow Bentley of Valley Crucis, who was among the first quota from Watauga County drafted under the Selective Service Act. Young Bentley, the article explained, is highly pleased with Army life and is now head cook with a monthly salary of $54. He says military training is most beneficial and plans to enter the Army for a three-year period when his present one-year enlistment is completed. There were occasional ruminations in the mountains about the possibility of severe conflict, such as when a public forum of 120 civilians was held to discuss the topic, whether democracy can survive the present crisis. The article noted, those who believe it can were in the majority. By the start of spring, on the weekend R.G. met Agnes's family for the first time, the United States Army had grown to more than one million enlisted men. The addition of the Watauga Democrat that showed up in R.G.'s mailbox that morning had called it a rapid expansion as a precautionary measure, while the fighting continued overseas. R.G. was too busy getting ready that morning to read much into it, and he set the paper aside as he walked out the door. He and Agnes had only been dating a few months, but she'd said she wanted to show him around her hometown. Knowing she wasn't especially fond of McGackiesville, too many bitter memories, too much gossip, R.G. figured this was just her way of letting her family get a good look at him. Whether that meant she wanted to show him off or put him to the test, he wasn't sure. Driving into her hometown, R.G. watched as the rolling hills of hibernating winter kudzu and dense evergreens suddenly cleared out, as if shorn away by pioneers. Which, of course, it all had been, long ago. Now McGackiesville, Virginia, was an earnestly plucky town of storefronts and stop signs, resting in the shadow of Massanutten Mountain. At night in town, Agnes said, you could hear the howls of coyotes in the distance, the scraping and branch breaking of black bears, and the venomous tambourine music of the rattlesnakes. R.G. was less worried about rattlesnakes and more worried about meeting Agnes's folks. But he shouldn't have been, for Mr. and Mrs. Davis, Agnes's father Wilson, and her mother Ethel, were both perfectly pleasant, relaxed, and welcoming. It was Agnes's younger sisters who were the trouble. So, was it love at first sight, you two? The three girls chirped the moment Agnes and R.G. walked in. Fluttering around in the foyer, the sisters, Naomi, Valley Lee, and Clara, peppered R.G. with all sorts of questions. What was it like living on a farm? Did he ride horses? Was he a cowboy? How much do cows poop anyway? Before launching into a series of embarrassing childhood stories about their sister, at which point Agnes promptly ended the conversation by hooking R.G.'s arm and dragging him out the door, telling her family she wanted to show him around town. You think they were tolerant of me? He asked as they walked down the sidewalk. Oh, more than tolerant, she said. 
and she took him forward by the arm. She held on to him as they went. Down the street they walked, R.G. taking in the view of this quaint town with its small roads and little shops, the occasional automobile passing by, little kids pedaling on bicycles behind them. He could imagine what Agnes must have been like all those years ago, just another kid growing up in town, her three younger sisters hanging at her hip as she led them to the grocery store or the park or the stretch of trees beyond. And it was as R.G. was imagining this scene that Agnes came to a stop. Only now did she let go of his arm. They had paused on the sidewalk in front of an empty lot in the middle of the road. It was an odd sight in an otherwise charming district. Farther up the road were other shops and homes, just as there were more shops behind from whence they'd came. But here was nothing at all, like a gap from a lost tooth. People passing by barely seemed to notice this sad lot, as if it were invisible to them. The ground was patchy with weeds and dead grass, broken bottle shards glinting in the sunlight. Rocks lay here and there, but the rest was a kind of dull sand. Ash, R.G. realized. Then he realized what this place was. Agnes had told him the story in one of her letters a few weeks earlier, but it was different to see it in person, to stand at the actual spot where her father's general store had once stood. There was nothing left of it now, not even a few charred bricks. The fire had devoured the building whole. Of all R.G. had learned about Agnes so far, the story of her father's general store had seemed especially cruel. Like so many others, Agnes's family had struggled during the worst years of the Depression, but they had also felt an obligation to help. Men with hangdog faces would show up here at her father's store with heads bowed in shame, having no way to feed their families, and Agnes's father had allowed them all to buy what they needed on credit. They were his neighbors, his friends. They had hungry kids at home. But soon the credit piled up so high, Wilson Davis knew he wouldn't get his money back. Yet he kept giving more and more. And to reward him for his generosity, fate had burned down his store. There was no explanation for the fire, no obvious cause or culprit. A spark in the wind, a faulty electrical wire, none could say. He'd had no enemies anywhere. But with his debts and all his stock burned up in the fire, there was no money left to rebuild. Agnes's father had cleaned up the debris, hauling off in wagons the last remains of his life's work, and had then found a meager desk job working for the Rockingham County Farm Bureau. The spot of his old store had sat empty ever since. A cold wind disturbed the ashen dust over the vacant lot, Agnes's dress ruffling and settling again. She was silent for now. Standing beside her, R.G. knew they were both looking at two different things, he at this sad, vacant lot, and she at the store that had once stood here. He couldn't see the brick front of the store with its sturdy roof, nor the flag that had always hung from the same spot in its brass mount. He couldn't see the items on display in the window, which her father had always carefully arranged to catch the attention of those walking by. He couldn't see the front door with its familiar clanging bell, nor could he walk through that door and browse the shelves of items, the bins of tools, the boxes of fabrics and the barrels of candy for the kids, all of which lived on as a memory, a ghost. But R.G. knew Agnes could see it all right there in front of her, her whole childhood overlaying the gray and scarred ground. He also knew she was telling him something. Now that she'd brought him here and revealed this part of herself to him, he realized he couldn't put it off much longer. Soon, very soon, he would have to show her where he was from, he would have to take her to the mountains. 
All his life, R.G. had always figured he'd end up one day marrying a farmer's daughter from the mountains, someone accustomed to the lifestyle the farm demands. Because who else would ever want to move to the mountains with him? Who else would be comfortable around stinky hogs and cattle? Agnes in her fancy dresses? He was kidding himself. The past few months, he'd been fooling her with his coat and tie look. He'd sat in the theater and listened to violins and Tchaikovsky. Once she actually saw his home, though, she'd think twice. But there was no getting around it, and if it wasn't going to work out between them, well, he figured let it be sooner rather than later. So he took her to the farm in early April, 1941. Agnes was dressed up pretty in the passenger seat of his Pontiac, R.G. navigating the winding gravel backroads that rose and fell, climbing steadily on their way to his land in Watauga County. He could have picked a better time of year for a first impression. As the mountains rose closer and closer, the sunlight illuminating the muddy slopes, it seemed only to highlight their gloominess. This time of year, between winter and spring, was what native Watagans called mud season. The colors of the landscape were brown and gray. It was cold, but not snowy, which was a shame. When it snowed, the mountains were beautiful, frosted with shades of blue and white that glimmered blindingly in all directions. A winter wonderland, like something from a children's fairy tale. The trees would freeze in place like glass figurines, ballerinas pirouetting down the slopes. Now the trees looked more like gnarled skeletons rising out of the slop. Naked growth bent over the road as if they had the bad backs of old men, annoyed at being awoken from their slumbers. If he could have only waited until spring, when the flowers and canopies bloomed, when life began anew. R.G. lived in a brick two-story farmhouse at the foot of hilly farmland in the valley under the mountains. When they arrived and parked their car in the puddled drive, he wasn't sure what to expect. Agnes stepped out of the passenger side in her flower-patterned dress, wearing her nice gloves, and stood there for a moment, before walking carefully in her stylish shoes over soggy grass, beyond the stink of the hogs gorging from the trough nearby. The cattle were up higher in the hills, like statues, a few lifting their heads now and then, but otherwise still. She held her hand over her eyes to regard them in the sunshine. R.G.'s eyes, meanwhile, were on her the whole time. Agnes looked so out of place, a colorful, exotic bird on a plot of mud. He was certain she would fly away on the spot. Still, he gave her the grand tour. He showed her the old barn, the meat house, the spring house, the ice house, the fields, and then he took her back up to the brick house. It probably wasn't well decorated by her standards, or anyone's standards, for that matter. R.G. never did have an eye for that. They walked around the bland kitchen and living room, the smell of stale old wood left in the fireplace's hearth. Nothing to write home about. He also gave her fair warning as they walked up the stairs to the second floor, explaining how the ceiling wasn't quite finished. R.G.'s uncle had left him this house after he died some years earlier. It was a sudden death, another sad story, but it also meant the house hadn't been fully completed. Whenever he wasn't working elsewhere, R.G. was doing his best to fix it up. The roof was his current project. Upstairs, sunlight streamed in through the gaps in the ceiling. R.G. thought he should have at least called ahead to tell the farm workers to put a tarp over the roof before she came by to see it. It wasn't supposed to rain for a week, but still. Downstairs again, Agnes walked through the rooms, nodding at this and that, and then she emerged back out on the porch, taking in the fresh air, looking out at all that land, the soft peaks of the Blue Ridge spread out in the distance. He figured this was it. 
She was about to tell him that they should get in the car, that they should go back. He wouldn't have blamed her. But then he noticed her pause there at the top of the porch steps, like a person at the edge of a diving board. And ever so slowly, she began sliding off her gloves. This would be a fine spot for a garden, she said, pointing down at the messy, muddy ground in the yard. Don't you think? He hadn't thought of it, not at all. But he found himself nodding his head as Agnes stepped off the porch, nodding even more now as she bent down and touched the dirt with her smooth fingers, feeling the mushy soil, letting it coat her hand. 